There are a number of people in this room that that song can speak to very well. A number of you have gone through some very difficult times in your life. And as we think about that, ultimately it's, it's a, a matter of glorifying Christ through it. And I'm going to be speaking here in just a moment, but there is something to be said about the speech that goes forth from a life that is lived for Jesus Christ in spite of and even because of the circumstances that we go through. Let's look to the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we have an opportunity to hear what your word has to say and then do something with it. That is always the case. And ultimately, it is our response to you personally. And we pray, Father, that as we have sung to you, prayed on the behalf of others as we have prayed to begin this service, that it is all about you, Lord, that we would understand that even as we're dealing with some things that we are to do, the ultimate purpose for all of that is to glorify Christ. And so we just thank you for this testimony and song. We thank you, Lord, for, again, the many testimonies of life that we see. We're always going to be lacking. There are always going to be things that we do wrong. There are going to be times of flat-out disobedience. But Lord, we thank you that when we have the opportunity and we respond in faith and obedience, that not only is that something that we can gain great satisfaction from because we are glorifying you, but it actually brings glory to you. And so even in these next moments, we pray, Father, that that be the case. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been looking at the book of Colossians, and just as we look now at the subject of put on kindness, that's one of the things that we are to put on. I want to just kind of center us and make sure that we're understanding where this is coming from, because really it's just, it's just a word, kindness. Uh, let's look at uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. And I'm just going to go ahead and read that for you. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Uh, we're gonna, just going to stop there today. Um, we've talked a lot about the, the, the surrounding area of this in previous weeks, but I just wanted to remind us that there is a context even with this, with this idea of kindness. So last week we established the importance, the importance, uh, the important components to this whole putting off and putting on process. Those who have faith in Christ are our new creation in Christ. We have been we have put off the old man. Um, uh, we have had the old man put off the old person, but God did this, and we have the new person that is us now because of our faith in Christ. And again, our studies showed us that that God is the one who made us a new creation, a new creation in Christ through the Holy Spirit making us alive. So we are now to renew our thinking to be like Christ. So we're new in Jesus, but now we're to change our thinking, we're to renew our minds, we're to be like Christ himself. We're to put on righteousness. Putting off does not mean that we have put on. 
We talked about anger and immorality and some of these other things and lying. When we put those things off, it doesn't mean that we're putting on virtuous things. It just simply means we're stopping what is wrong. So it takes some work to put on the things that we are supposed to do. But our position in Christ makes it possible for us to be renewed in our mind and live a sanctified or set-apart life. We observed in verse 12 three aspects of being in Christ. God chose us, God set us apart, and God loves us. And these three things are also to motivate us to live a godly, Christ-like life. Last week we also saw that we were to put on tender mercies or a compassionate heart. And one of the things I want to pause and, and, um, and, and just say out loud, um, we're talking about putting these things on, and it is a continual process. And I, I don't want you to think that when, as I'm speaking these things that we don't have any compassion among us, that we don't have any kindness, what we're going to talk about today. But we're talking about continually doing that. So our starting point isn't zero, right? We need to understand that. Our starting point is that we want to glorify God and continue to do that. So as I have been studying, I do want to make a couple of observations. Uh, Overall, churches like ours do a pretty good job of covering sin, right? We kind of preach and teach that we're not so good folks. And uh, sometimes we can do that a lot. (laughs) That's not necessarily a bad thing. But I also noticed that a number of the commentaries I'm reading during, through this section give more coverage on the section on sins in chapter 3 than on the things that we are to put on. Um, sometimes two or three times as much conversation regarding the sins that we're to put off. Now again, this isn't necessarily bad or wrong, but it might reveal a tendency that we have of focusing on the negative more than the positive. It's easy to do, isn't it? You're served a meal. Ah, the potatoes were a little cold. Right? You get a Christmas present. Almost what I wanted. <laughs> you know? So, so, so it's, you know, there, there's, there's, that, there's that negative aspect that we kind of sometimes had a tendency to go toward. But putting on virtuous character qualities is just as important as casting off sinful practices. That's why Paul is telling us this. That's why God has it in his word. Therefore, I want us to give a thorough practical examination to these character qualities. We've tried to do that so far. So I want to make sure that we have balance because without it, our spiritual growth will also be out of balance. That's why sometimes we kind of have this inward morbid look at how awful we are as opposed to remembering, yeah, but we're a new person in Christ. He's done something amazing and wonderful in us already. And through the Holy Spirit, he's continuing that process by helping us to renew our minds, to to have a different kind of knowledge, to know Jesus and be like him. So as we talk about this thing called kindness, first I want to ask, what is kindness? Well, I looked at the definition, and sometimes Merriam-Webster is not very helpful. It says, kindness is the quality or state of being kind. That's deep. This is followed up by a kind deed. Still doesn't help me very much, right? 
So even if we look back at the word kind, the definition of kind is a sympathetic or a helpful nature. And then that's, that's a little more helpful. But I want to try to put some substance to this. And I want to do that by looking at the word of God, right? But kindness results from acting upon a compassionate heart. That's what we've already investigated together. A compassionate heart is the mindset and the motivation behind a number of things. And the primary one is kindness. We might say that kindness is the feet and hands of a compassionate heart. Right actions resulting from a right mindset. If we are others-oriented, that's going to come out in our actions. So a compassionate heart is others-focused. It sees others through a positive mindset that seeks their good. Compassion and kindness are the opposite of wrath and malice that result from anger, right? Our acts of kindness should parallel our care and concern for others. Kindness is compassion lived out in what we say and what we do. So again, it derives itself from a compassionate heart. So I want to look first at the kindness of God. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah oversaw the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem after they were expelled. Um, after completing the wall, the people had Ezra, the priest, read the book of Moses to them. So this is a celebration of the wall being rebuilt. Again, God's people were taken out of the land. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. When God miraculously returned them and they became a nation again, right, um, uh, he, he built the wall and they had a time of celebration. They began to follow God's word. And then in Nehemiah 9, they gathered together, they listened to the law, they confessed their sins, and they worshiped God. This was all taking place. The Levites led them in a prayer of adoration and praise to God. Some people believe that Nehemiah maybe had, had, have even written this long prayer that we see. We're going to look at a piece of it in, in uh, Nehemiah 9. But when, he, when, when they did that, they, they broke up into groups, and the different Levites that are named then said these things to the people so they could all hear. So verses 16 and 17, these are a part of that prayer as they recounted God, God's acts toward those who were set free from slavery in Egypt. So I want you to see that. Nehemiah 9, 16 and 17. But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Amen. Wow, what a testimony of the Lord. So they're talking back when the children of Israel left um, uh, uh, Egypt. But here's the thing. These people recognize that they were acting the same way as those folks who were rescued from Egypt, the same as their forefathers. But they also saw the Lord act in the same way towards them, including his abundant kindness. So that was the parallel that this prayer was giving, that just like we had a stiff-necked people then, we were too. But just like God was kind to them, we saw God's kindness. We're seeing God's kindness to us. There's a pronouncement in the book of Joel 
The book of Joel is both a prophetic book of judgment, and it's some pretty serious stuff, and a book of hope of future deliverance. After telling the people a detailed graphic prophecy of judgment that would soon come, Joel says this, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. We might call this the olive branch, right? You know, we, we, we think of it that way. But what, what Joel is saying is even in the middle of all this, even in the middle of their wickedness, he's saying you can still turn back. You can have a change of heart and mind. You can place your confidence in God. You can trust his ways. You can trust his word. Because he's kind. He is very kind. God was ready to stop judgment, partly because of his kindness. And then we see in the New Testament verse, Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. We talk about the love of God, and of course that's there. But we also talked last week of the compassionate heart that God has. He demonstrated that compassionate heart through the kindness, through the demonstration, the doing of sending his son, of Christ coming and giving himself for us. What I want us to do now is then look at a biblical example of kindness. We've seen the kindness of God, ultimately God giving us salvation because he's kind. Because he did something. There was an act that took place based upon his heart of compassion. The biblical example of kindness really comes down to the kindness of a stranger. We're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I'm going to tell you, folks, this is kind of a message within a message, but it's important for us to understand what's happening here. So turn to Luke chapter 10. This was our scripture reading this morning, but what I want to do is I want to read for you just the part here. We already read about the lawyer. And by the way, the lawyer, that just simply meant that he was one of those who served uh, the, 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 um, the Pharisees in that. He wasn't fully a Pharisee, but he was one who would interpret the law. Okay, that's what lawyers do. So he was interpreting the law and he would, he would try cases and different things like that based upon the law. So he kind of did what lawyers do today, right? So we're not going to talk about him, but we're going to go to verse uh, 29 here, okay? It says, but he wanting to justify himself and said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, 
as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Uh, so which of these three do you think was the neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And obviously the man said it was the Samaritan, even though he didn't use the word Samaritan. So what I want to do is uh, just think, think with me for a minute the occasion of this parable. Many of us have heard this story multiple times. Even some of the youngest among us are familiar with this story. But maybe there's some folks here who are not quite as familiar with the story, and that's okay. I want to go through this and, and just kind of see some of the things that we have. In verse 25, it says that a certain lawyer stood up and tried to test Jesus. And this seems to indicate that there was a group of people. Um, it, it, it seems to indicate that maybe he interrupted Jesus during a time of teaching or was in an active discussion. Either way, this man stood up to be recognized and addressed Jesus. We don't know really anything about the group. We don't know about the audience, but it seems like it was more than just the lawyer, right? Why would he have had to stand up and address him? This could have been a large group of religious leaders or one lawyer among a group of regular folks. We just don't know, don't know that for certain. But the lawyer asked Jesus how to inherit or gain eternal life. Jesus asked the lawyer what he understood from the law. And the lawyer answered well, as Jesus said, right? He gave him the, the fact that we love the Lord and we love people. Now, I you know, encapsulated that a little bit just to, just to keep going here. But there are a number of unimportant details missing from the story. It's okay. They're not important. But God's word gives us a peek into the lawyer's heart. He wanted to justify himself, right? He gave a great answer. But when Jesus acknowledged that answer, it wasn't quite enough. Jesus must have struck a nerve. So the lawyer challenged Jesus to define who would be the lawyer's neighbor. Now let's look at the circumstances of the victim. Jesus doesn't give any details in his story about the man who was robbed. And again, that's not necessarily important. That's not the purpose behind Jesus' story. However... The man was almost certainly a Jew, and we will examine that a little bit later as the story goes on. Now, the Greek is very precise in that the man was surrounded by a group of robbers. That's, that means that he fell among thieves. The idea was, here he is traveling along, and a group of guys come around him. He has no way out. He has no way to defend himself against this group of robbers. He's robbed of everything, including most of his clothes, He's beaten severely, and he's left for dead. The term half-dead actually means that the robbers left him, caring not whether he was dead or alive. They had absolutely no regard for this innocent guy who was just going about his business. Now, he was traveling on a road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Now, I want to kind of just help you understand this. Um, I know that it's not real easy to see sometimes the slides, but I want you to look at, um, I'm going to go away from the mic for just a minute here, Jerusalem being down this corner here, and that is the road down to Jericho. 
Now, we look at down and up as north and south. They looked at it as elevation, okay? This is a rough trail that was around 18 miles long, and it descended about 3,000 feet through those 18 miles. There were plenty of places for robbers to hide. It was a rugged place. Now what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at the response of the priest and the Levite. So we have where this took place. We have what's going on. Now let's talk about what, how the priest and the Levite respond to him. First off, Jericho was actually a place where a number of priests lived. They weren't always at the temple. They had a rotation. And not all Levites served as priests. They were in that priestly tribe, but they didn't all serve as priests. So a priest is taking the same road, came upon this unconscious man, and when he saw him, he simply passed by the other side. Nothing else is said. A Levite happened along next. Again, this man would have been from the priestly tribe, was not actively serving in the temple at the time. He actually stopped for a brief inspection of this man, but two passed by on the other side. What's interesting about this proverb is that it is the only time that Jesus references the priesthood in a negative way. He had some words to say about the Pharisees, didn't he? Now, we don't know if this was a criticism of the priesthood and their callousness or if it was just Jesus using this example to provide a very strong contrast. It's not said. In that day, Jesus' message would have been received exactly the way he wanted it, okay? We need to understand that. But the contrast here was trying to make a point to this prideful lawyer. We see between these two men their coldness and indifference. They did absolutely nothing for this man. To stop and kind of give a little bit closer inspection didn't do anything more for this injured guy than what the previous priest had done. Now I want to insert this idea of this man's ethnicity. If the victim were not a Jew, maybe a Samaritan, for example, everyone would have understood and approved at their behavior. Because they didn't like the Samaritans, and they certainly didn't like Gentiles. Only if this man were a Jew would the audience have understood that these men were cold-hearted and without compassion for this other gentleman in, a des in desperate need. So without it, the story really has no gravity, has no punch. Now what I want us to see is the compassion and kindness in action, and that is of the Samaritan. Who came along next? The Samaritan gentleman, okay? Well, I know many of us have heard this story many times, but there may again be some who haven't. The Samaritans were a group of people who had a mixed Jew and Gentile heritage. When most of the Jewish people were taken out of the land by foreign powers, other peoples were transplanted to Israel. That's what the power at that time did. They would come into a country and they would take a lot of people from that country and they put them somewhere else. Then they would take over another country and they would transplant some of those people there. They'd mix people around because if you weren't in your own land and you weren't all together, you were less of a threat. That was the, the philosophy behind that. Uh, later on, when the Jews returned, it was because a new nation took over that nation and they said, you know what? If people are where they're supposed to live and they're with each other, they're going to be happier. 
we're not going to have all this rebellion. And so that was a different philosophy of government. So this transplanting ultimately resulted in the Jewish people mixing with the Gentiles. The Jewish, now the purely Jewish people, despised the Samaritans and considered them worse than Gentiles because they had intermarried with Gentiles. Now, we need to keep in mind what these Samaritans had done in previous generations wasn't right. Okay, They weren't supposed to intermarry with the people. They're supposed to only intermarry with Jewish people. They were to be a separate nation for God's glory. But I'm not certain that it was supposed to create a hatred, right, in the hearts of people. And by the way, the Samaritans didn't feel any better about the Jews. Let's understand that. You know, we talked about Nehemiah. What's interesting is, is that the people that were harassing Nehemiah were Samaritans when they were trying to uh, take care of building the walls. Again, the parable wouldn't work if the Samaritan was helping a fellow Samaritan. Of course he would, right? That too would have, been ex- would have been expected. So the Samaritan helped this Jewish robbery victim. The Samaritan was outside of his own land and he was on a dangerous road. Now I'm going to expand this map a little bit. This is actually the map of Israel during the time of Jesus' travels. Um, so it's, it's kind of relevant here. And you even see in that little box you can't read that says that there's the road to Jericho. But what do you see in the purple in the center? That's Samaria. That's where the Samaritans lived. That's where they settled. So you remember back in John chapter 4 when Jesus said, I need to go through Samaria. Do you see the other road to the right of that? That's what they normally travel. They didn't go through Samaria. You didn't need to go through Samaria unless you had business there. And Jesus did. It was a talk to the woman at the well. So that was how much they hated them. They would not even travel in their land. They would go around it. All right. But what I want to ask you is, did you notice verse 33? What motivated the man? And when he saw him, he had compassion. Folks, just like we talked about, he was motivated by a compassionate heart. The Samaritan knows nothing about the victim. The Samaritan didn't care about this man's ethnicity, his income, his family, history, or where he lived. Nothing. None of that is indicated. Yet he took care of his immediate needs by dressing his wounds. But the Samaritan didn't stop there. Now, just real quick, there might be someone who says, what's this about oil and wine? Okay. The alcohol and the wine would have been antiseptic. And the oil was a balm. It was designed to soothe the wound. And that was the ancient way that they took care of someone's wounds. So obviously, this man was cut and bleeding, uh, he was not in good shape. So he didn't stop with just taking care of his immediate needs. He took considerable time out of his own plans. The Samaritan put the man on his own animal, the scriptures say there, while he walked all the way to the inn. We don't know how far that was. We just know that it was a relatively rugged trail. 
Once they arrived, he paid an amount that provided for two months of food and lodging for the man. Think about that for a minute. He walks in with this, and I don't know if he was conscious at the time or not. Again, we don't have those details, but he was left for dead. Puts him on his animal, walks all that way, walks into the inn, drops some coins down, and says, take care of this man. He also promised to settle up with the innkeeper if the bill is greater than what he provided. So this must have been some type of a route. Some people kind of hazard a guess that he was possibly a businessman going to and from his, his um, operations of whatever, whatever they were. And so here he stopped and, and helped this man and possibly would have known the innkeeper would have been by there at other times. Again, that's just speculation. It's a story. But all of this was done for a perfect stranger whom the man might normally see as an enemy. A perfect stranger that the man might normally see as someone he hated. See, Jesus often used parables or everyday illustrations to correct wrong attitudes, actions, and beliefs. Here Jesus taught the parable of the Good Samaritan to turn this lawyer's question upside down. When the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor, he was asking Jesus to define for him those who would make the cut, right? Those who would have earned neighbor status. That was how he wanted to justify himself. Instead, Jesus turned the situation around with his story to give the proper understanding of a loving neighbor. After Jesus told the parable, he asked a direct question of the lawyer. Look at verse 36 here. So which of these three do you think was the neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Of course, the lawyer had no choice but to say that it was the man who showed mercy on the victim, the complete stranger. And like I said before, the word Samaritan just could not come out of his mouth, right? Is the third guy. The emphasis is not on who is my neighbor. The proper emphasis is what kind of neighbor am I? And that's what Jesus drilled down. That's what he got across through this story. Jesus then told the lawyer, you now go and do the same thing. Boom. Conversation over. Popular phrase, mic drop, right? It's done. Whether there are five or 500 people present, there would have been a very tangible, horrifically uncomfortable silence that everyone would have felt except Jesus. <laughs> he was very purposeful in what he said. He needed to set this guy straight. He, he knew how to respond to the law, but he didn't know how to do it because there was no heart. There was no compassion. Justify for me who I'm supposed to take care of. That was really what he was saying. And Jesus said, no, no. You need to be the type of person that takes care of others, that shows kindness based upon your compassion. Just like this hated Samaritan did for one of your kinfolk in my story.
So what do we do with this? What have we learned? First, I think it's important for us to tuck away in our brains that it is futile and even foolish to argue with God. <laughs> That's what this man did. Let's learn a lesson, folks. Debating with the Lord is not going to be a winning proposition for us. Never. Second, again, kindness is a heart of compassion in action. There is a general kindness that God has for all of creation. But God's special kindness is shown to his children through sending Christ to us for salvation. His kindness is demonstrated to us in countless other ways. We see that in our lives. And we are to put on the kind character of God. We are to put compassion in action through kind acts. The illustration living out uh, the great commandment Jesus gave uh, in the parable about the Good Samaritan was this. As we have seen, Jesus was specifically answering the question, who is my neighbor? What the lawyer was really asking, as we said, was, okay, Jesus, you think you're so smart, you think you have all the answers, who am I required to love? So it's not about who my neighbor is, it's about who I am as a neighbor to others. To the extent, to what extent am I to show love and kindness to others? Right? We can ask that. Well, Jesus stripped away every excuse and even went further with this story. He explained through the parable that we are to be a kind neighbor even to the point of costing time and energy and resources. So let's ask a few questions. Can we help everyone? No, we can't. We can't help everybody. Can we call off work every time there's a need that we're aware of? Probably not. Unless you're self-employed and quite gainfully self-employed, you, you can't do that. Should a woman stop on the side of the road to fix a tire for someone? No. That's foolish. Do we have limited time, abilities, and resources? Yes. So I've just given everyone an out, right? Does any of that really change what Jesus just taught us? No, it doesn't. Let's get beyond the exceptions and really think through and apply what it means to be kind. What it means to be neighborly. Let's be encouraged to look for ways Jesus might use our kindness for his glory because that's ultimately the purpose. To think about what he may do in the life of another person because we are motivated by a compassionate heart just like his and we are doing acts of kindness just like he has done. I want to leave you with one last thing. Let's also be encouraged that Jesus may one day tell us a story, personally. A story of our kindness to a neighbor. Jesus might, one day, when we stand before him, tell us a story of what he saw. When he tells us, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we contemplate the reality of living out our faith, Lord, there are certainly times when 
it is just not humanly possible for us to meet all of the needs around us. We have to make judgment calls. But Lord, we know in our heart of hearts that this story was not about the kind of exceptions that we sometimes justify our own selves with. But that just Jesus was getting to the heart of the matter that our kindness is going to cost us something. But that that cost is well worth the price tag. That that investment is an investment that is made by doing exactly what this man recited, this lawyer recited from your very word. That we are to love you with our whole heart, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. So, Father, I pray that instead of trying to decipher and grade who our neighbors are, that as Jesus put someone in a situation that was completely, utterly separate from the norm, that we would understand that that message is really to us, to be neighborly, to take our compassionate heart and do acts and words of kindness, ultimately bringing glory to our great and glorious Savior. We thank you for the kindness that you showed us in sending Christ to be a sacrifice for our sins and rising again to give us hope for new life. In Jesus' name, amen.